Jenny made her mind up when she was three That she herself was going to trim the Christmas tree Christmas Eve she lit the candles, tossed the papers away Little Jenny was an orphan on Christmas Day Welcome to the 13th episode of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. This time I'm talking about Ginger Rogers and Lady in the Dark from 1944, directed by Mitchell Lyson. When John Mueller reviewed Ginger Rogers' autobiography for the New York Times, he complained that she talked too much about the costume she wore. I was incensed when I read it. Ginger's audience wants to know more about her costumes, and in great detail. He insisted that she spent too much time on costume and not enough on big revelations or emotional insights. Honestly, if you don't think Ginger Rogers' battle with Fred Astaire over the blue ostrich feather dress and top hat isn't one of the most gripping things you've ever read, you need a moment. Of all the clothes Ginger wore in a long and illustrious career, her wardrobe for Lady in the Dark rates as a standout. Partially, this may be due to director Mitchell Lyson's background in costume design. He started out in set and costume design, so he knew what a formative role wardrobe played in creating a character. He also brought in Edith Head and Broadway costumer Raoul Penet Dubois to the production's design team. In many ways, this film rates as the holy grail because wardrobe plays a pivotal role in telling a woman's story. Ginger's character, Liza Elliott, is the editor of Allure, a prestigious fashion magazine. Her life story is mediated by clothes from her earliest memory. To be contrary, she declares that she loathes fancy clothes and instead wears menswear, pinstripes and dark navy, somber brown wool, and with an angular padded shoulder. Eliza wears a smaller version of a fedora at a rakish angle. She has prestige and power, but what we would now also recognize as panic attacks. She's consumed by a fear she can't explain, and the boss lady suddenly can't make a decision. Her doctor refers her to a psychiatrist, but like many people in a position of authority, she resists asking for help. Watching Ginger storm around the offices of Allure, decorated in in a mid-century palette of celadon green walls and pink lampshades, looks like a dream and an inspiration for a hundred film and television sets over the decades. The office set mixes ultra-modern colors with gold filigree classical pillars and rococo chairs and sideboards. The waggish decor contrasts with Ginger's downcast mood. The funk that she operates under gains further emphasis. One writer in a jaunty veiled hat concocts a feature, a new column entitled Why Not?, which feels as fun as the offices. It fails to rouse Liza from her depression. One look at the sitting room in Eliza's flat, and it's evident that she's unhappy. It's the strangest setting, devoid of any comfort. On one wall, there's a pastoral scene of a house set on wooded hills, but it looks surreal, blurred, and distorted, as though it's a nightmare rather than Arcadian ideal. The distressed steel panels over the mantle look bleak and institutional. The room looks punishing. It has no visible upholstery or pillows. A series of long wooden benches and chairs with spindle backs line the room. Even in the colonial era, when they were in fashion, they would have had sewn cushions to soften the seat. The edges are hard, the surface is stiff and unyielding, the hearth cold as a grave. Even the small bit of rug looks scratchy and unwelcoming. 
A happy woman would not live for a minute in this space. A bus depot offers more warmth and coziness than this grim shaker gulag. Eliza's sitting room has more bars than the local sheriff's office. Her married lover, played by Warner Baxter, waits in the joyless prison room to greet her after a long day. She can't decide between the anniversary cover they use every year or the circus idea put forth by the head of advertising, Charlie Johnson, played by Ray Milan. The circus idea is terrible, by the way. I wish Eliza had recognized it and told the smug ad man that high fashion never courts tents on the midway. Overwhelmed, she decides to see the therapist her doctor recommended. I can't help but wish that Ginger Rogers did not spend the rest of this film doing what men told her to do, but here we are in 1944, during the big push to convince women that they should abandon the fabulous careers they had in favor of doing some guy's laundry. When Ginger tells a psychiatrist that she dreamt of a blue, blue dress, that she wanted it desperately, it calls to mind the famous dress that she fought to include in Top Hat. She wrote about it in her memoir as though she had dreamed about it. She wrote that it should be a pure blue without any hint of green. In the scene for Lady in the Dark, a pure blue frock flies out of a door in the ground that looks like a buried coffin. It says editor on top. Out flows a beautiful blue dress, one that could be for my own dreams. She chases it. The whole film hinges on the significance of this blue dress from her childhood and how it shaped her relationships with men. The importance of clothes in this picture makes a tantalizing puzzle until we learn the significance of the blue dress. Her problem, viewers are told, stems from the old Freudian family romance in an early contest with her mother for her father's affections. As a result, she is retreated from feminine clothing to avoid competition with other women for men. Psychologically healthy women are supposed to cheerfully compete for men, we're told, and use a full glamour arsenal to win and hold a man. Getting and keeping a man was the first order of a woman's business, and it still is in many circles. So mental health for Ginger means less camaraderie in the office and more time on her wardrobe and makeup. Some of what transpires in the shrink's office feels more relevant today than many women would care to admit. When Ginger reveals that she hates blue, that she hates fancy clothes, and that she despised girls who cared about fashion and marriage, her anger is shared by dozens of women I've known. It's a familiar gambit. Women like Liza think that if they distance themselves from fashion or anything that bears the hallmarks of female taste or femininity, they will escape men's hatred and their second-class status as women. Liza wants an exemption from male judgment, so she hides in pinstripe suits and eschews anything tainted with the female touch. The loathing she exhibits for silly women doesn't make her any less of a woman in the world, and it doesn't make her any happier. If anything, she just, she's just magnifying culture's misogyny and internalizing it. If the film seems simplistic in what it has to say about male liberty and womanhood, think again. Watch the circus scene and the saga of Jenny Number. If the picture cops out at the end and forces Liza to trade a plum job for an MRS degree, it nonetheless offers scathing commentary about what society does to women. Lady in the Dark challenges the way that tradition demands women to comply and obey. It points out the double standards and double binds. 
She's in an actual cage, for God's sake, a subject of public scorn. In a dream sequence, the saga of Jenny reminds us that smart and talented women are hemmed in on all sides by the narrow scope of choices available to them and the harsh judgments that follow. The song's chorus tells us, poor Jenny, bright as a penny, her equal would be hard to find. And yet she lives a life built on impulsive decisions, which lead to disaster in her life at every turn. She kills her family, is sexually rapacious, where she can't say no in 27 different languages. She takes up with a married man, writes a scandalous memoir, which leads to libel suits in 40 of the 48 states, and dies debauched at 76. The psychiatrist tells Ginger she's sick because she can't make up her mind, but Jenny always could make up her mind, and she wasn't really the picture of mental or physical health. Women are held against a standard of perfection that deflects the possibility to have fun. She can't just have a fling with a secretary or an advertising executive like any man in her position would and remain acceptable. Warner Baxter is not an enviable catch. There's no passion between them, only a business relationship with extras. When Ray Milan sneers at her and says, rage is a pretty good substitute for sex, isn't it? How could she not throw the paperweight at his head? She doesn't have the freedom he has, even though she's smarter and works harder. It's enough to drive anyone's blood pressure through the letters etched in glass on her door. Ray Milan scoffs at her masculine fabrics, noting they must use the same tailor. He questions her femininity. He makes withering comments like, you married that desk years ago and you're never going to get a divorce. Plenty of men have the same paternalistic dismissive tone today for career women. Throughout the picture, it appears that he wants her desk and her job more than he wants her as a lover. That desk is a phallic symbol of power all right, and he objects to her having it. Ray Milan can often be swoon-worthy on screen, but this isn't one of those films. He's an absolute scoundrel, a thug who thinks he should be running the show by virtue of his penis. Viewers know that his insults are a challenge and that it will lead to a big sexy gown at some point to prove him wrong. Cue the vagina skirt. Technically, I should call it a labia skirt, but vagina sounds nicer. Mitch Lyson asked Edith Head to create a detachable mink skirt that was lined with red brillantines. In a picture devoted to an exploration of Freudian subtext, the skirt says Lady Anatomy writ large. In Edith Head's Hollywood, she noted that it cost $35,000 to make and wasn't fit for purpose because the skirt weighed 30 pounds and was too heavy for Ginger to dance in. They resolved the problem by making another skirt, one lined with sequins instead of rubies, which made the garment much lighter for Ginger to move in. The original one with gems is on display in the Smithsonian. Oftentimes, a critical consensus becomes unshakable. Such is the case for Ginger's performance in Lady in the Dark. People say psychoanalysis was too strange a concept for her due to her dedication to the self-remedies promoted by Christian science. For far too many critics, she's still just Fred Astaire's dancing partner, the cute blonde who dances backwards and in high heels. Yet Ginger's performance stands the test of time. She doesn't overact or chew the scenery. She displays more range in the Saga of Jenny number than most actors could muster in an entire film. 
She's as verdant as spring as she begins the paces through Jenny's story from age 3 to 76. She's sexy and saucy and then withered down to a crone with a deep creaking voice before she kicks the bucket. That vagina skirt may not weigh 30 pounds, but Ginger said it weighed 15, yet she flicks it around as though it were featherweight. She's convincingly distraught as her grip on the idea of who she is crumbles. When she's in her gulag living room looking at the mock-ups, look at how she initially pulls them out with a familiar sweep, something she tells us she's done a million times. Then suddenly she doesn't know how to hold the cardboard posters. They slip out of her grasp. She's losing her grip on her life. Ginger masterfully builds little bits of business with props during the picture, like how she stabs out a cigarette or uses one to emphasize her despair. This was one of the most shambolic productions backstage. There were feuds, health and safety issues, prop disasters, glitter issues. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from David Chiarchetti's book, which blends interviews and biography. It's called Mitchell Lyson, Hollywood Director. I fought against doing that one for two years. Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett had written a script which completely and utterly ignored Moss Hart's play. They had dreams where people were running down the street in their underwear, hiding in dog houses and being chased by wild horses. Moss had done psychoanalysis, and he wrote the play right after he finished. It's all very consistent to the theory of Freud. The people in her dreams are the same people who appear in the story. In the Hackett version, the dreams had nothing to do with the plot. They just wrote a whole different story. I was in New York after No Time for Love, and Buddy De Silva called me and said that he had never expected to have to make it. But part of his three-picture deal with Ginger Rogers was that she play this part, and for God's sake, would I please agree to do it? I said that I would not shoot the Hackett script. He said, I don't give a damn what you shoot. Just say you'll make the picture. So I went to Moss Hart and got his original prompt copy, and I came back to California and wrote the script of Lady in the Dark. I had a gal come in afterwards and do a little polishing here and there. Her name was Kearney or something. The Hackett's got credit, but their script was thrown in the wastebasket. I knew it was not up Ginger's alley. Although seeing it the other day, I say she gave a better performance than I expected of her. It took 10 years off my life. I can tell you that. And those psychoanalytical scenes on the couch, she didn't know what the hell she was talking about. I'd go in quietly and try to explain to her what the thing meant and pull it out of her. I mean, I really pulled. She was very bad at matching action. You take a master shot first, and then you go in and make your close-ups. If she lights a cigarette on a certain line in the master take, it has to be lit on exactly that word in the close-up. Otherwise, you can't cut it together. She always had a hard time remembering how she'd done it. She was always late coming to the set. The day we did the Suddenly It's Spring number, she arrived on set at half past three in the afternoon. I had 165 electricians waiting all day. I told De Silva, I'm not going to be a policeman. If you don't like it, you talk to her. I didn't want her for this picture in the first place. One day, we were doing the scenes on the couch, and she blew take after take until I thought I'd go out of my mind. Finally, she said, I'm sorry, I I just can't keep my mind on this because I'm getting married tomorrow. Mr. De Silva let her go off and get married in the middle of the picture, and the entire company just sat there for two weeks. 
He said, you can shoot around her. I said, no, we can't. She's been late every day and we've shot up every scene she's not in. She came back and gave us two weeks at the end of the picture for free. She would have been sued if she hadn't. The play and our picture were quite different. The picture is 10 times as elaborate as any stage show could possibly be. The play had more music and relied more on the lyrics. When we were planning it, I remembered going to Napoleon's tomb at Les Invalides in Paris, and I got the feeling that the very air there was blue. I looked up and discovered that all the windows in the ceiling were of ancient blue stained glass. For the blue dream, we got the same effect by flooding the soundstage with blue light. To intensify the blue, we put in a little violet and a little green. We used tons of dry ice to get the cloudy effect, and we found some marvelous stuff you could just spray into the air, and it would form a cloud that would stay right there. Unfortunately, the extras complained that it was hurting their respiratory systems, so we had to stop using it. The sets were blue, the costumes were blue, the makeups were blue. On some of the women, though their hair was red like Liza's mother's. The girls made everybody in the commissary sick when they came in for lunch with their blue faces, scarlet lips, and red hair. In fact, we flooded our eyes with blue to such the extent that we lost our ability to perceive the color blue, and we'd have to leave the stage and stand in the sunlight for 20 minutes to get our eyes back to normal so we could continue. We really got blue on the screen. That Eastman color dupe we saw yesterday can't compare with the brilliance we had in our original Technicolor prints. We shot all the dreams in the big stage 18 where the basement was storage for furniture. We took all the furniture out and made it into a dressing room for the chorus girls. For the blue dream, the girls made up and came upstairs in blue kimonos. After we'd rehearse it and lit everything, they'd go downstairs, get dressed, and come up again in the freight elevators. Their costumes were so enormous, we could only get three of them in in the elevator at a time. We had Dorothy DeFrasso's Rolls Royce, all covered with blue glitter, and the lap robe was the blue Picasso that hung behind Liza's desk in her office. Misha Auer became her chauffeur in the dream, and he sang Tchaikovsky, the famous number Danny Kaye did in the play, where he names all the Russian composers. We had quite a job cleaning Miss DeFrasso's car up, and, and in the end, we cut the whole section out of the sequence. We used tons of dry ice in the gold dream, too. The wedding dress that Dubois designed for her had yards and yards of skirt. When Ginger danced with Don Loper, the dry ice would make it so wet it weighed a ton and she could hardly move in it. Between takes, we had 16 wardrobe girls with ironing boards all around her trying to dry it out so she could go on and do another take. Those chorus girls and the gold dream really had to know their stuff. They came down these little runways that were 10 or 15 feet off the floor and only a few inches wide. They twisted and turned all over. I had the girls rehearse it over and over until they knew all the little turns of the runway by heart and could come down without looking at their feet. Then they turned on the dry ice, which was covered over the runways, and made it look like they were floating on air. Did you design her hairstyle too? Don't blame me for that. It was something she and her hairdresser cooked up themselves. The pompadour with it hanging down the back soon became completely passe. Lady in the Dark was on the shelf well over a year because Paramount had a terrible backlog of unreleased pictures during the war. The pictures that would have run two weeks earlier were now running six months and the newer films couldn't be released. 
I finally went to the front office and started screaming bloody murder. Look, this was high style when we made it, but if you don't hurry up, these gowns will be a joke. They knew that Ginger Rogers' hairstyle had changed amazingly in the meantime, so that sped them up a little, I guess. From Edith Head. There were three designers in Lady on the Dark. Raoul Penny Dubois, myself, and Mitch. Mitch did more of it than either Raoul or myself, but he insisted that I take sole credit for the street clothes, which was extremely generous of him since many of them were his. He said he wanted a jeweled red gown with a mink skirt that would open up and be lined with brilliance, and that's what we gave him. He paid very close attention to all the details of that dress, and we did just what he wanted. Dubois came from the stage, and he was used to doing what he wanted. Raoul didn't like having to sit down and discuss things with Mitch. In any movie, but particularly one of Mitch's, it has to be collaboration. Once Raoul realized this, most things went smoothly. When I first knew Mitchell, he was a perfectionist and very sure of what he wanted, but he was nice about it. In the later years, he became increasingly bitter and sarcastic. I would go show him a pile of sketches we had worked on for days, and he would just glance at them and hand them back and say, Dig deeper, Edith. What he really wanted was to do them himself, which was fine with me. He also became very foul-mouthed, and he would tell dirty jokes that offended people. From Ray Milland. Everybody thought Lady in the Dark was so wonderful at the time, but I always disliked it. Moss Hart was looked upon as a god or something. All these sweet young things were always fluttering after him, saying, Oh, Moss, you're so divine. Can you imagine anything more inappropriate than Ginger Rogers playing a Moss Hart script? She was physically competent, and she had been wonderful for the major and the minor, but this was way beyond her. And disappearing in the middle of shooting to get married was the last straw. All the time we were filming, I tried to be very philosophical. I kept saying to myself, make the best of it, this too shall pass. I did my own singing of the circus dream, and of course I couldn't sing, although I'd been a good singer when I was a child. I kept thinking, this too shall pass, and I plunged in and did it. The costume Mitch designed for me for that number was out of this world. I had a tailcoat of paillettes of magenta and blue, white twill cavalry breeches, and boots up to the knee. Madame Karinska was one of the few who could make one of Mitch's drawings and figure out how to make it. She corrected him, too, while he was off on something. For one thing, his military uniforms were always straight out of the student prints. Eleanor Broder Ginger Rogers was always very nice and never lost her temper. She and her mother, however, had a very annoying habit of talking to each other in baby talk in front of others so they could not understand them. Phyllis Seaton. That picture was complete chaos from start to finish. At best, it would have been an impossible project, and everything that could have gone wrong technically went wrong. There were literally thousands of people on the stage at all times. The heat of the lights for the Technicolor was oppressive, and the fumes from the dry ice made everybody ill. I was pregnant, and I pleaded with the studio to let me quit the picture because I was sick every day. They told me that if I stayed with it, they would let me direct a picture on my own after the baby was born. So I stayed with it, and I had a miscarriage. When I came back, I asked them about my picture, and they said, we didn't really mean that. We just told you that so you wouldn't quit. And I never got to direct a film. Ginger Rogers is a very lovely person, but she was a star with a capital S. 
By that time, she had reached the zenith of her career. There was not too much I could do to help her. I was more of a stage manager on that picture than a dialogue coach. Thanks very much for sticking with me. Join me next time when I'm going to talk about Barbara Stanwyck and the Gay Sisters from 1942. Thanks very much.